The information provided on the Finesse Your Money podcast is not intended to constitute legal, business, financial or other professional or product advice. It is provided as general information only and is not intended as a substitute for personal advice from a qualified and licensed professional who is familiar with the facts of your particular circumstances. Ever asked yourself where your money is going? It's a common problem for businesses and people personally. Is it dumb luck to be successful with money? Or is it the smartest and most successful businesses and people that plan and know their numbers? Is your money out of control? In this first season of Finesse Your Money, we're focusing on challenges for businesses right now and practical steps that you can take to overcome them. We've also got some awesome tips from our guests about what they are personally doing to keep their money in check. Finesse Your Money is hosted by me, Janine Wilson. I've been a financial advisor for 10 years and an accountant beforehand for, well, more years than I care to say, and I'm the founder of Finesse Financial Advisors. Welcome to Finesse Your Money Season 2. Our guest today is Dr. Brett Taylor. Brett and I have known each other for about five years, and I asked him to send me through his bio, and this is what I've got. Brett is a Sydney dentist with diverse interests and strong opinions that are loosely held. For reasons that remain a mystery, the International College of Dentists, the Pierre Fouchard Academy, the Academy of Dentistry International and the American College of Dentists have each honoured Brett with a fellowship. He expects they will eventually realise the error of those decisions. In 2006, the New South Wales branch of the Australian Dental Association awarded him their inaugural branch medallion for outstanding contribution to dentistry. He's not sure what they were thinking either. His real CV is longer than this, boring as batshit and more dangerous to your health. He hates being (laughs) asked to write CVs. Thanks so much, Brett. (laughs) I hope hope that's given your listeners a taste of um, my uh, irreverence. What's to come? (laughs) Don't, Don't miss this episode. I also asked Brett to tell me what people would say about him and this is what I got in that regard. So I get my kicks from helping people and being good at what I do. At the moment, that itch gets scratched by my regular job as a dentist, the books I've written, Simplifying Life, Simple Steps for Finding Your Way in a Complex World, a business I've started to help dentists and patients called Smile Right. Welcome, Brett. Thank you. So obviously, you know, you're, you're a dentist, you've been a dentist for 30 years and, you know, you've written a book about life. Why did it take so long and what did you learn? Well, <laughs> I started writing the book well, I've, I've been a dentist for 35 years, sadly. I started writing the book because people kept saying to me, um, gee, that that um, that thing you told me was good, Brett. And I go, well, what did I tell you? And they'd recite some piece of advice I'd given them. And then I'd think to myself, that's good shit. That was like, that's good stuff. And then after that happening several times, I started writing it all down. So then I just collected my thoughts and the advice I'd given people and just things that had popped into my head because I put life through a filter. So the way I work at, look at things is anything that happens to me, I look through a filter and I've got this sort of what does it mean, what does it matter approach. So being a dentist, you you see lots and lots of different people all the time. So you've got a, a vast array of people sort of chancing upon uh, you, most of them not happy to be there, most of them happy to have a conversation but not really wanting to be with you. So it's an interesting way to, to view the world. So I kept 
writing the book and writing things down and keeping my day job as a dentist and you know looking at every problem that happened to me and wondering what it really meant in the greater scheme of things and eventually when I stopped learning things I wrote the book mm. so I feel like you know when do you feel like you're you know enough to write a book about life it's a pretentious thing to do one of my favorite lines is it's what you learn after you know it all that counts what did you learn after you wrote the book uh, well that's interesting I, I learned the meaning of life after i wrote a book about life how cool is that <laughs> fantastic it, like again i wrote i wrote the book for 30 years and uh, eventually published it and then it was after i wrote it that i realized what the meaning of life was and it was uh it was like a, a little epiphany having thought about it for so long it finally came to me and it was simple like the, the meaning of life is extremely simple and it's just the meaning of life is to help people mm. it's as simple as that nothing else actually makes sense if we're not here to help people then why else are we here and so that sort of once you wrap your head around that and even even helping people helps yourself if you're the sort of person who thinks that that isn't important and that you can be completely selfish and just be indulgent of your own whims it might bring you some sort of short-term pleasure but it's not really a long-term thing whereas if you actually feel like you're raising detries to help people then we get a kick out of that like it, it's fun to make people feel good it's fun to make people laugh it's fun to make people feel you know, less scared, more confident, better about themselves. I mean, that's that's just being a dentist. And it's just everything in life. And I don't think we give ourselves enough credit for the amount of help that we give people on a daily basis. You, you're helping your boss if you're a good employee. You're helping your employees if you're a good boss. You're helping your customer if you give a rat's ass about your job. You're helping, you know, the man in the street by picking up a bit of litter. You, you help everyone all the time. And to me, that's what gives me satisfaction to knowing you're just doing little things for people. And what else, what else is there? I'd be happy to hear a contrary view because... I don't have one. I completely agree. Certainly in my occupation, I give a lot of myself every day and I, I find it really fulfilling to help people. But that's the same in any part of my life. You know, I've had that ethos for quite some time about giver's gain. You know, one thing that did occur to me recently that sometimes, you know, you give, 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 and then you forget a little bit about yourself. So when you say, you know, looking after people and all that, you've got to actually look after yourself as well. And I don't see that as selfishness. I just see that as self-care. So, you know, self-care is vitally important, uh, as is giving to others and feeling fulfilled by that. Well, my, my angle is that you're another too, like you're people. Yes. So helping people, you know, helping yourself is helping people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But you get the, it's the feedback. I mean, it's the, you do something nice for someone and they're grateful. I mean, that's where you feel good about yourself. Mm. You, you can't give goodness away because if you give it away, it, it's returned to you with interest. Yeah. And that, that, that's in the book, by the way. So you, you can't give good things away without getting more good back. And conversely, you can't give bad away without getting more bad. So if you've got negative thoughts about someone, it's repaid, you know, with interest. So mm. that's why you're better off having positive thoughts. Sometimes I think people these days get carried away with too much positivity. Social media has created a lot of people that should be introspective are showing themselves off to the world. Uh, I don't care about someone's lunch. That's another story. Mm. So uh, tell me about ethical selling. What what does that mean to you? Ethical selling, well, that, that's an interesting concept. We all sell something, even 
little kids in the schoolyard are selling themselves because they want friends. You know, even if you don't think your job is sales, like in dentistry, you know, you don't want to think that your dentist is selling to you. I mean, you, you, you go and I've had open heart surgery. I don't want to think that my cardiologist is selling me, you know, a valve because he gets a kickback on the valve, for instance, or he has a financial interest in what he's doing. So ethical selling is about thinking about the customer first. So you have to be doing it for the right reason. So in dentistry, you know, I've got a business, I've got to sell something. But if I'm seen to be selling, it doesn't feel right. You don't want to be sold to by, by a healthcare professional. So as a healthcare professional, you've really got to think about how you're presenting options to patients. So my concept of ethical selling is to state what's happening. So state the case, state the situation, and then provide the patient stroke customer with their options uh, with advantages and disadvantages. And normally the disadvantage of the most expensive option is the cost. So you've got to spell that out. But if you, in a non-emotional, non-attached way, just allowing the customer to know what the options are and what the advantages and disadvantages of those options are, and then letting them decide, I mean, that's the only way you can, you can ethically sell a service. And, and you have to be making sufficient money out of whatever option the customer chooses. So if you have a vested interest in an outcome, then you've got a financial interest in them choosing something over another. So, uh, you know, I don't like this sort of lottery win approach to, to selling things where if, if you pick this option, suddenly I've got the big win. So I'm going to uh, consciously or subconsciously steer you towards that option. You can't do that as a professional. So if I'm a plastic surgeon, right, and someone comes in and, and they, they could have one of two procedures and one of them is a lot of money for me and the other one is not so much money, well, I don't want to feel like I'm going to steer them towards a particular outcome. So years ago, I helped the Dental Association redo their fee schedule. And we used to have a thing where there were lottery wins. So you would make a, a vastly higher hourly rate on a particular procedure than another procedure. And it meant that you were trying to steer people towards that. And I just didn't feel that was right. So I helped them restructure their fee strategy whereby you effectively were getting the same hourly rate for whatever you were doing. So there wasn't any high margin work. There was just work. And so if someone chose a more expensive procedure, that was because it took more time or more skill to do it. And there was no sort of win. All professionals have a financial interest in someone using your service, that's a given, otherwise you wouldn't be in business, but can't make it so that you, so that the practitioner wins if a patient picks a particular strategy. And I think that that's very much aligned with what I do in the financial advice. I mean, my job is helping people make informed decisions. So they need as much information and education around strategies, for example, so that they can make a choice that's right for them and that fits with their overall intent or goal yeah well the 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 thing that i don't like about your industry hit me with it <laughs> well is that there are people out there that can derive massive commissions from the customer taking a particular service or product mm. and i've been caught out by that by previous financial planners which is why i'm with you and not with them whereby they did have a vested interest in me picking a particular product. And that's completely 
um, unethical in my opinion. I, I really, I don't like that. And there was, there was a time when, you know, I, I know it's better now, but, you know, those things weren't declared. You didn't know exactly, you know, what the planner was getting out of you picking a particular product. And I really don't like no. that. And I agree. I think it's not the right thing to do. It's certainly not how I run my business. Um, everything's very transparent and, you know, fully fee-for-service so people understand what they're getting, what they can expect, uh, and people assign their own value to advice. But if there's hidden fees and so on or they're not declared, that that just doesn't feel right, doesn't sit right with me, and I'm glad that the profession or well, my profession has seen some substantial changes to date. I don't think we're fully there yet. No, no. <laughs> it's an evolution. <laughs> well, my, my profession is not without uh, fault either, so <laughs> I'm not picking on you guys. Let, let's agree. Let's agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. doing our utmost to uh, do the right thing and, and get people what they need and what, what they deserve. So what's the best business book that you've ever read, um, Brett? There's a, a great book called Influence the Psychology of Persuasion by a guy called Robert Cialdini. Really, really uh, fascinating book about what motivates people. And again, part of this, I mean, I'd like your listeners to have some sort of useful information out of this discourse. When you're dealing with anyone in business, you, you need to understand their motivations and what's happening, why they're thinking the way they're thinking. So Cialdini has these things called influence uh, principles. So he, he says that these are the things that, that people do to try and influence you to buy. So not everyone's an ethical seller like you and I, uh, Janine. And so you might come across someone who's trying to push your buttons. And Cialdini tells you what those buttons are. So for example, scarcity is a button. So scarcity principle is that you will want something if you think it's in short supply. So toilet paper is a current <laughs> recent uh, thing. So people wanted toilet paper more because they couldn't get toilet paper. Okay, People were desperate for toilet paper. People were fighting over toilet paper because they couldn't have toilet paper. So uh, that's a spectacular example of the scarcity principle. People want things they can't have. So, you know, people will try and con you by saying there's a time limit on something. You know, this deal only lasts so long. Uh, and that's designed to push a button. You know, and that, that's hardwired into your brain. Cialdini also talks about some of these things you, you can't fight because it's an evolutionary trigger. So if you're aware of what they are, you can be a little bit more premeditated is the wrong word. You can protect yourself against being conned or sucked in. Another one is um, commitment and consistency. So uh, commitment and consistency says that uh, you will do things that you say. So if you say something, you're more likely to do it. Positive side of that is something like goal setting, uh, which is also in my book. So if you do goal setting, the reason goal setting works is you're more likely to be like the person who set those goals. So if you write it down and say, that's me, then you're more likely to do it. Where it can be used against you is the old classic encyclopedia salesman who comes to your front door and says, do you think education is important? Yes. Do you think your children are important? Yes. Do you think it's important your children have a good education? Yes. Well, you should buy this encyclopedia because that's how they're going to get it. So because you've said yes to these different things, so there's a whole sales strategy whereby you get the customer to say yes. And because they keep saying yes, they've boxed themselves into a psychological corner where they have to buy off you. So, I mean, just, just knowing all this stuff protects you as a consumer, but also it lets you sort of frame things as a seller. I mean, I, I use 
these skills for good, not evil in my own business. I'm a, like a psychological Jedi master. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can get, I can I guilt trip people into um, flossing and using pixters and cleaning their teeth properly and looking after themselves. So, you know, if you've got an ethical standpoint, if you're coming from the right place, you can use these skills in good conscience to make sure people do what they should do. I just want to jump in and let our listeners know that we're recording this in May 2020. So we're sort of in the COVID situation, hence your comments about a short supply of toilet paper. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, maybe there'll be another short supply of toilet paper. Maybe, who knows? So it's my experience that people generally think that they've got complex problems. So, you know, look for complex solutions when a simple fix might be, you know, right there in front of them. So Mm. I know that you speak a lot to other dentists. What do you think are the biggest problems that dentists face financially? Uh, Well, not having a good financial planner like you, Janine. I think that's one of their biggest faults. Thank you, Brett. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually, in my book, which I don't want to keep harping on about, but that was one of the things I realised, and this is not supposed to be a plug for you. This is just a general principle in life. If you want confidence in life, you need confidence in where you're going. So again, I make a big deal about goal setting um, in my book. But one of the things you need is, you know, confidence in the future. And I really ignored financial planning in the beginning and came to it late and with a dodgy person before I saw you. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for that confidence in where you're going in life in the future. And I, you know, I think setting goals is an extremely important thing, know where you're going. And, you know, financial goals and knowing what your financial future holds is important too. Let me give you my goal setting strategy because I like it. Okay. It's sort of what I think you should have goals in three facets of your life, a career, health, and family. And so um, the way I do my goal setting is um, you need a, a short-term realistic goal, you need a long-term realistic goal, and you need an unrealistic long-term goal. So the unrealistic long-term goal is shooting for the stars. So that's got to be something that is unachievable and people need to laugh at you when you tell them. If they don't laugh at you, you haven't set that goal high enough. And then the realistic long-term goal should be something that's achievable with a lot of hard work. And then your short-term goals are all designed to get you to your realistic long-term goal. And they can be a a one-day goal, uh, a one-week goal, a one-month goal, and then your birthday each year. So just as an example, my unrealistic long-term career goal was to write the second best book of all time. I figure the Bible or the Quran or probably that's number one, but I reckon I had a shot at number two. (laughs) So that was my unrealistic long-term career goal. And my realistic long-term career goal was to get a book published. Now, when I wrote that down, um, I had a blank sheet of paper. So it took a lot of work for me to get to that position. My unrealistic long-term health goal is to be... um, is to be mountain bike riding at 110. I used to say 100, but no one laughed, so I went for 110. And then my realistic long-term goal was to be 85 kilograms with muscles. Now, when I wrote that, I was a 95 kilo, flabby, uh, unfit, never done the exercise sort of person. So I got to that 85 with muscles. The moment I'm 86 and my muscles have gone backwards because the gyms are all shut at the moment. Let's blame COVID. COVID. Yeah, thank you, COVID. Uh, my long-term goal for family, my long-term unrealistic goal for family was to be such a great father that my children wrote books about me. So <laughs> so I'm holding that in. You told me that about five years ago and I, and I did laugh. 
<laughs> my youngest daughter is, does want to be an author, so I've, I'm halfway towards that one. My long-term family goal was to have a, a, an international family holiday every year. But I, I really do sincerely think that people need to have written goals, write them down and figure out how to get to them. And the unrealistic, you know, you're a small business owner and, and you really could imagine yourself with a chain of 50 stores. Well, you know, write that down. You know, if you want to have two stores, figure out what you've got to do to get 50. It's got to be unrealistic, you know, and then you've got to have a realistic one that's on the way there. So it's something like one store that generates X dollars, you know, it's something that's not easy to achieve, but but not impossible. So a little bit of a challenge. No, it's got to be not no more than a little bit of a challenge. It's got to be hard work. Speaking of goals, one of the biggest things that I, biggest mistakes, I guess I'd say, I see people making all the time, and this is especially true with folks who've, you know, got a reasonably high income, is they suffer from grabbing, you know, every opportunity that's presented to them. And it's a bit like, that's a nice, bright, shiny object. And it sort of detracts a bit from, you know, what, their goals are. And when we look at what they've accumulated, it's all over the place. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's highly speculative. And sometimes it's even, you know, akin to gambling. So often I see that, you know, their significant other in life doesn't necessarily feel the same way about that. And it's really looking for comfort and security. So that can create a lot of problems. So having said that, what's one big mistake that you see people making over and over when it comes to their money and, and, you know, do you have an opinion on how they can avoid it? I think not having a financial planner. I think that's the biggest mistake. You need someone to, this is sound just like a bloody big ad for you, Janine. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay, Brett. Let's proceed. <laughs> uh, but it's true. You need, you're right. I think people who are, who do have a good income suddenly think they're always going to have a good income. And the whole COVID thing, dentists were unemployed for a month. I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be unemployed. I mean, injured, sure. That's the mountain bike riding problem. But no, never in my wildest dreams thought that being unemployed was on the table. There were dentists who were, you know, getting job seeker, job keeper, and um, it just never occurred to me. So that's given me a new appreciation of things can happen that you don't think will happen and maybe your income's not as secure as it could be. And, you know, if you have got a good income, you think it's always going to be there and maybe won't always be there. So you need a plan. You need a good planner, someone who's going to give you different advice to the way you think yourself and maybe argue the sensible position, which you do. If any young dentist asks me, you know, what they should do, first thing they should do is get a good planner. And then things I wish I'd done differently. I probably wish I'd bought more property when I was younger. If I had met you when I started my career, I would be retired now just from being sensible and having a sensible strategy. Definitely a good planner is the thing I tell people to do. So for me, I think I go beyond that. Not just do you need a great planner, you need other people in your tent as well. So you need a great accountant, a tax advisor, you know, your private bankers. Again, this all comes as your wealth sort of accumulates, I suppose, but there's nothing wrong with making those relationships early on in your career mm. so that you know that you've got someone to rely on and that you know that as life changes and things happen, like recently with COVID and the practice shut down for a month, you've got valuable advisors around you that can help you steady the ship, if you like. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. Yeah, you, you need some sort of, the right sort of people, a good accountant, good financial planner. If you've got a big enough business, a good bookkeeper. Like I'm a big one for protocols, procedures, checklists, etc. And I think part of the the stress of business is not having things organized, not having 
protocols in place for situations, having to think about everything. There's, there's nothing worse than you need systems in place so that you know your business runs itself as much as possible, your life runs itself as much as possible. Uh, automation is what I call it. So you need to automate your life as much as possible. So I'll give you a very simple example. I, I must have 40 different bills that need paying on a monthly basis. And if I have to pay them all consciously, it's just a, a nightmare. So every single bill that can be paid automatically by credit card or direct debit has got that set up. So I don't have to worry about or think about doing that. I mean, sure, I've got to pay my credit card at the end of the month. I could probably even automate that if I wanted to. But, you know, that's just such an, a simple example of something that make, can streamline your life. You've got to pay the bill anyway, so you may as well have those auto-pay features. Well, one, of the, one of the US presidents talked about um, decision paralysis, and their attitude was they had the same thing they wore every day. They didn't think about the clothing they wore because it was another decision and they only had enough capacity for a certain number of decisions each day, and that capacity needed to be saved for important decisions. As a simple example, they just had the one particular uniform they wore. So, you know, the more you can automate your life and save your thinking power for things that matter, the more important it is. We just can't, you can't be making 100 decisions you know, a day. I completely agree. And I think that what's really important, particularly for people who are business owners, is that the value of the business, you know, when it comes time to sell or, you know, I, I work with businesses on succession planning. And so, you know, when the time comes to sell, oftentimes it takes five years to get to that point and because they don't have proper systems and processes in place. Yeah. The, the value of the business is tied up in, in the systems and the processes and how things work. So the automation of the business, um, that's where the value is and the assets that those businesses have developed. You know, what what brochures or collateral do they have when you know dealing with their clients and so on all of that adds to the value of the business and makes it easier for the business the business owner or practitioner in your case you know to take a step back and focus on all the more vital stuff that needs to be you know those decisions the, the really important decisions that may need to be made versus all of that functional stuff the administrative and all of those sorts of things that just need to tick along and happen on a day-to-day -day basis well just on that topic one of the other books i read was the e-myth i don't know if you've ever read that the entrepreneur myth like people like me i really don't have a business like i have a well-paid job you pretend you've got a business but i am the business that's a poor business model the hairdressers over the road from me are a whole lot smarter than I am because they ended up turning their job into a business. When you're a businessman, you think you're the most important person. People come and see you. You're the face. You're the star, etc. And then the moment you can step back and have other people who have billable hours who people are happy to see, and suddenly you end up with a business. And the less you work in the business is the more you're proving that you have a business. So unfortunately, professionals like me, we really do have uh, well-paid jobs and not really businesses. However, you can still sell a business, as you say, if you've got those systems in place because someone can come in and replace you or replace your job seamlessly if you've got systems in your business. So that's a thing. But the smarter people do build their businesses to the point where they're not the business. And I, I can't ever see myself getting to that point. Do as I say, don't do as I do. <laughs> <laughs> so look, you know, there's some 
fundamentals in business. So what do you think are the big problems if people don't sort of grasp those concepts and, you know, make all that, you know, those necessary plans? Well, just like you said, you can't sell your business. So a lot of people feel like their business has a particular value because it makes a certain amount of money, but how easy can someone else come into that business and run it? Some of the better franchises, you know, have an income and it doesn't matter who the person who owns it is, they still tick over and they run and they've got a specific value you know, based on return. So some people, when they buy that business, they're just buying a well-paid job, which is fine. There's nothing wrong if you don't have a well-paid job, being able to buy a well-paid job, or it's something that can be grown or can be run by someone else. So is it ever too late to get a grasp of your money and, you know, set yourself up and make sure that you are turning it around so you've got some real value in, in your business or your life? You know, you've got to think laterally about what your skill set is. There's another concept I love, which is the how much is enough thing. Um, a lot of professionals like me just pile money away thinking that they need a massive nest egg and then they'll just retire and sort of draw it down and then, you know. So a good planner will have those conversations with every individual they're working with just to understand what it is that they want out of life. And, you know, certainly people accumulate money during their lifetime and some have accumulated enough to live off it and some have not. You know, if they have, then there's some decisions to make about whether they want to, you know, consume that for the, in the rest of their life or, you know, they want a legacy to hand over to their family yeah. or friends or lovers, you know, or they want to continue to grow that. Um, so they can leave a substantial legacy. That, that whole how much is enough thing is important. Another idea that sort of has come to me late in life is you can really stretch your retirement out if you can find something to do a day a week. The whole idea of retirement is themidus to me. I can't conceive doing nothing. Some people might think that's a, a great way to live their retirement, but it would I just can't even imagine it. Standard line is there's nothing wrong with dentistry that doing less of it wouldn't cure. I think I'm not the only one who thinks that about their lives and their jobs. So I think if you end up, if you can get in a position where you can have a slow retirement, like go to three days a week, go to two days a week, maybe think in terms of doing a day a week to supplement what you've saved and what you were intending to live off. Working a day a week when you've got your nest egg to live off, I would assume is going to make your nest egg uh, last a lot longer. And, and we're all living longer. And I think it's important to know that that sort of feeds the fuel of the mind, body and soul. Yeah. Well, but, I, but again, this, this all comes back to the importance of planning. You know, I think you need to, to have a little bit of a left field thought. I mean, hopefully someone's listening to this thinking, you know what, he's right. Maybe if I did just plan on working a day a week after retirement, how much would I need then? Have that conversation with your planner. Is that achievable? Is that realistic? How can you go from being a full-on, over-the-top, 60-hour-a-week professional? On a slow week, I work 60 hours. Like, that's that's me bludging, you know? Me too. Yeah. So, like, that's just the way I live my life. Should I be living my life that way? And, you know, and you do it, again, you've got this sort of thought that you've got to pile it all in the corner somewhere and then draw upon it. Well, you know, if you've got a different outlook, a different mindset, I think it's really important to think about what's next and develop multiple income streams and you know start to plan around what the future looks like. So what are your top tips for our listeners today to get control of their money and set themselves up for their future? Well, have a plan. I mean, you've got to have a plan, figure out when you want to retire, if you can figure that out, if you want to retire. I don't think you can ever really retire. 
I think you just do different things. I think even if you were retired and independently wealthy, you've really got to do something, either either volunteer or... So mm-hmm. it's not just about, you know, a big nest egg of money. You've got to feel like you've got something useful to contribute um, even when you are retired. So, yeah, I, you're 100% right. You've got to think about the future, what comes after you retire from your your first life, you know, your first career, your first business, and then figure out what that second phase post, you know, inverted commas retirement is. I can't let this uh, chat end without mentioning that uh, I have an impression that um, one of your life's purposes is to promote veganism. Tell us about that. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, I was given a 30% chance of living uh, 15 years some time ago. Um, I had a 95% chance of living five years, which was good. I like those odds. The 30% chance of living 15, yeah, I didn't like that much. So I had a malignant tumour removed from my neck and um, I'm now around about the 12-year mark. So I think I've beaten it. But part of that was when you get told that you're, gonna, you're probably going to die, it's, it's, you know, that's not as much fun as it sounds. So I figured my best chance of living was a plant-based diet. So I'm vegan implies you're a zealot. The more I learn about nutrition, the more I realise that the closer you get to a plant-based diet, the longer you'll live. So I felt like I wanted to live a lot longer and that was the way I went. So that doesn't mean I don't like the smell of bacon. Trust me, I love the smell of bacon. I just uh, just don't act on that urge. <laughs> but no, it's, it's like, you know, that, that, again, that's part of my my whole health goal. You've got to change course. You know, life's about changing direction when you have to change direction. And I felt like I was forced to change direction in terms of my diet. I felt like that was my best chance of living and I did it and it hasn't been that hard. So look, we've learned so much about you today, Brett. Where can we find you? Do you have, you know, where, where can we grab your book or find uh, you Well, actually the book's on Amazon. Um, so um, Simplifying Life, Simple Steps for Finding Your Way in a Complex World. Um, you can get a Kindle version in Australia. Um, you can see me as a dentist in Penshurst at Leading Edge Dental if you want a dentist with a sense of humour. Don't expect a serious dentist. Don't do serious. Serious is not in my vocabulary. So uh, Leading Edge Dental. If anyone wants to engage with me in conversation, it's brett at edgedent.com.au. Happy to have a conversation with people about anything or help them. Or As I said, my goal in life is to help people. That's what I think is important. That's what I like doing. I get a kick out of it. I give my time generously to anyone who asks for my help because I enjoy it. Brilliant. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I hope our listeners got a lot out of that, Brett. Is there anything else we should know before we sign off? It's what you learn after you know it all that counts. Brilliant. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Julie. Hope you enjoyed the show today and have some action steps you can take right now to get control of your money. Join me, Janine Wilson, next time for Finesse Your Money. Meantime, head to my website, www.finesseadvisors.com or email me at admin at finesseadvisors.com to claim a gift voucher for a discovery session with me valued at $150. Make sure you put gift voucher in the headline.